I always want my kids to eat healthy, real foods, but as a busy working mom with two kids, I don't have a lot of time to shuttle from store to store. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable, and they quickly ship straight to your door. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. At Thrive Market, you can get organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. I love stocking up on Larabar, sunflower seed butter, and seaweed snacks, plus non-toxic cleaning and beauty products. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. If you want to get more real whole foods in your family's diet without spending a lot of time in the kitchen, having simple, easy kitchen appliances is the way to go. For me, the one appliance I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender, but the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years, and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last and come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insights to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelant. Intuitive eating has been a buzzword over the last few years, but is it something we should teach our kids? Children actually are born intuitive eaters. They're able to determine when they're hungry, when they're satisfied from birth, but we train it out of them so that usually by the time that they're five years old, they start to lose that ability. That's Dr. Yami, a board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, national board-certified health and wellness coach, author, and international speaker. We'll talk about what intuitive eating is, how to practice it at home, and why it's one of the best ways to raise healthy eaters. Hi, Dr. Yami. Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. Julie, thank you so much for having me. We're going to have lots of fun together. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. So you and I actually connected because of your book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, and your publicist, I guess, had pitched me, but it wasn't a fit for the work that I do for the outlets that I write for. But then I ended up pitching you, and I was on your (laughs) podcast to talk about 
how to make feeding your kids fun and easy. Um, so I'm excited to, to talk today about intuitive eating. So first, let's start with your story. When and why did you become a pediatrician? And is there something that you specialize in? And how do you work with families today? Well, I have wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. So it was a lifelong dream, a lifelong journey. But I didn't know I wanted to do pediatrics until I was in medical school because I knew for sure I didn't want to do pediatrics. So I saved it for my last core rotation. By the time I had gotten to that rotation, I had already decided that I was going to do geriatrics, which is the polar opposite of pediatrics. It's dealing with only the very old (laughs) of the population. And when I did my pediatric rotation, I just fell in love and love. And at the end of the week, I came home to tell my husband who was in medical school with me that I loved it. And he was like, oh, good. I'm glad you enjoy it. And I'm like, no, I, I really, really like this. And that's when I made the decision to go into pediatrics. And it's just a natural fit for my personality. Kids are so fun. They're funny. I can smile and laugh and joke with them. And of course, they're just so adorable. All my, all my patients are just the most adorable in the world. That, that's but a it, great story. Yeah. And it wasn't until I finished my medical school and residency, and I started my job as an attending that I really got more interested in nutrition and and why it's important for how we prevent disease and how we improve well-being and joy in ourselves and in our children. Yeah, I think that a lot of pediatricians, they don't get a lot of uh, education in nutrition, right? And so they're not always the the best source of information. So that I think it's great that you have that experience. Yeah, we get some, but it's pretty much the same thing over and over again. Like one of the things that gets drilled into your head as a pediatrician is how kids and teenagers and everybody, but especially kids, need dairy over and over and over again and how much milk you need and how many servings of dairy and how that's the best source of calcium and the best, 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 pretty much like this perfect health food. No other food ever existed as perfect as dairy. And so you learn that and that's how you practice. And a lot of pediatricians practice that despite my experience just within the first few years of practice of seeing some of the harm that it caused some children, I continued to practice that way. It wasn't until I was able to open up my paradigm and see things differently that I could accept that maybe dairy is not the best for everybody. And so it's one of those things. It's just a journey and you, you get trained a certain way. You learn a certain way you learn from your mentors, which is great. I've had such amazing mentors and I've learned from them and helped take care of kids from them. But then it's good to just observe and pay attention to what's really going on, not just continue to do the same thing over and over again, because that's what you were taught. What types of issues were you seeing with the kids who were consuming dairy? Chronic constipation, chronic abdominal pain, and even from infancy, even from breastfed babies whose moms consume dairy, you get cow's milk protein intolerance and babies that have blood in their stools, things like that. So definitely you see issues with dairy, but the most common one is when babies are weaned from the breast or weaned off of formula and they start drinking cow's milk and then they develop constipation and some that just overconsume it to the point that they develop anemia. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of issues associated with dairy and cow's milk consumption, but like I said, I had prioritized it so much that I just learned 
workarounds to dairy. Right. You know, one of my favorite things to prescribe was called a purple cow, which is you have your milk, but you put prune juice in the milk. So (laughs) put, you know, it makes it purple, kind of purplish color. It's called a purple cow. And that's one of the ways that you can kind of circumvent that constipation problem. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But better to just avoid it altogether for those kids. Right. Definitely. And and it's not some sort of death sentence because, of course, parents get concerned. Well, oh, my gosh. Well, what's going to happen where I get their calcium from? Well, one thing is we have lots of plant based alternatives now, fortified plant milks, but we can get calcium from plant foods too. beans and greens are a great source of calcium. And one of the most important ways to build strong bones is going to be through weight bearing exercise, which we never talk about. So Mm -hmm. we talk about calcium for bones, but we never talk about one of the most important factors for building strong bones, which is using your bones. And kids are great at that. So important. That's great. So when it comes to feeding our kids, where do you think parents may miss the mark? Parents are awesome. And I love working with parents. And I have some of the best parents in the world that love their kids. But what happens is we get very anxious, especially when our kids transition into toddlerhood. And the most important thing in the world to them is exploring their environment and learning and playing. They're not as interested in sitting down for long periods of time and eating a bunch of food. They're calorie intake might decrease a little bit too, because they're not growing quite as fast. And then parents start to get very concerned that their kids are not consuming enough. They're either not consuming enough calories, according to parents, not consuming enough protein, which is a common thing I hear from all parents or not consuming enough vegetables. And when this happens, this anxiety causes parents to start to intervene and try to find a way to get their kids to eat more. Believe it or not, 85% of parents try to get their kids to eat more. So I see that that's one of the biggest issues. And it starts pretty early on in life, right at that toddler stage. Yeah, absolutely. So intuitive eating, I know that you're a big proponent of intuitive, intuitive eating and you're an expert in it. And so it's been a buzzword, I'd say, for the last five years or so. But it's actually been around for over 25 years And so can you talk about the history of it and what it actually is? Yes. So yeah, intuitive eating is something that's been around since the 80s. And the first, the actual term was coined by two dietitians. So Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. So they are the founders of intuitive eating as a movement. And they wrote a book called Intuitive Eating, which is now in its fourth edition. But the concept of intuitive eating has been around for even before they wrote the book. And I think it started because there had been this surge in dieting in the 80s. And especially we all remember the low fat craze, which just caused us to create a lot of processed foods that were lower in fat. And this obsession with calorie count counting and thinness. And so it just created what we now call diet culture, which is definitely still alive and well in present day. But I think one of the coolest things about intuitive eating is coming back to trusting our own bodies because through diet culture, through all of these plans and meal plans and calorie counting and macro counting, 
we started to lose touch with our own bodies and we started to distrust our own bodies, started to believe that we can't trust our own bodies. And sometimes we project that onto our children as well, but children actually are born intuitive eaters. They're able to determine when they're hungry, when they're satisfied from birth, but we train it out of them so that usually by the time that they're five years old, they start to lose that ability because repeatedly over and over, we tell them you should eat more or you should eat less or you should eat this instead of that. And then they also lose touch with their bodies and lose that ability to tune in. But thankfully, no matter how long you haven't been eating intuitively or how long you have been dieting or even people that have developed eating disorders, they can come back, they can reconnect and develop that sense of intuitive eating again. And that's great news. And so I was reading your book and you have a pretty interesting story about how you became interested in intuitive eating. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I started dieting when I was nine years old and it was a pretty crazy roller coaster. I have tried every single diet, lost weight multiple times. And the more you have that restriction in your life, the more likely you are also to develop binging and overeating, which definitely happened to me. So I was on this roller coaster of restrict and binge and restrict and binge. And it just got to the point where I was miserable. I was very depressed. And around that time, well, it happened many times, but the time that I hit my rock bottom was when I had brought my second son home and I I just couldn't even focus or concentrate on being a mom to him and enjoying the time I had with him. I was just obsessed with food and feeling bad because I had binged and feeling just very ashamed and guilty about all of that. And so I was, I was ready to quit it all. And thankfully I was able to work with a coach that helps with women that have experienced this in their life. And she was the person that introduced this concept to me. And I'm so grateful. And then right after that was when I discovered plant-based nutrition. And I feel like that was another step forward in my liberation because I saw nutrition completely differently. I didn't see it in terms of calories or macronutrients. I saw it more as nourishment and just a simple way of seeing things. And so those two factors in my life just came at the perfect time to help me learn and relearn intuitive eating and how to tune into my body, but also just how to feel good because I hadn't before been connecting to that. I was just more connected to what is my weight? How can I lose weight? How can I maintain weight rather than how can I feel good inside my body? Yeah, it's such a vicious cycle. And I, I've done intuitive eating myself and try to do it. Um, I don't know that I do it wholeheartedly every day, but I definitely try to listen to my hunger and satiety cues and give my body what it needs. And I have to say, it's really a freeing concept. You know, you're not tied down by tracking and you really do. You listen to your body and you give it what it needs. And it's it's such a just a free a, free, a feeling of freedom for sure. Yeah. And I think the most important concept when it comes to intuitive eating is that there's no perfection. Yeah. We are so stuck on this black and white, all or nothing, whatever number of calories or whatever percentage of macros. No, intuitive eating isn't about perfection. And it's still 
acknowledges that sometimes we're going to emotionally eat. Sometimes we're going to overeat and that's part of normal life. And it's nothing to be ashamed of or nothing to feel guilty about. And it doesn't make you a bad person. That's great. Yeah. Great point. So we usually hear about intuitive eating for adults. A lot of the content that is out there is all centered around adults, but is it something that kids should be taught as well? Well, like I said before, most kids are born that way. So it's not about being taught. It's about protecting, encouraging, and fostering their natural ability to be intuitive eaters. And in their book, and especially now in their fourth edition, they have expanded the chapter on children because, like I said before, children can lose that ability to eat intuitively. So they have to relearn it, but we can also protect it. And that's really where I want to focus with on parents is reassuring them that it's normal that sometimes their toddler only has a couple of bites at a meal and maybe doesn't even want to eat dinner. And then the next day they eat more than you do. That's normal toddler behavior. It's normal human behavior, but we don't accept it for ourselves. As adults, we think we should eat the exact same amount every meal, no matter what. But really it shifts and it changes from day to day, from season to season. When children get sick, they may not eat as much and that's all natural and normal. So whenever we apply it to children, it's more for parents to be aware that this is part of just the way that children are born. And we can do things to protect that, which is to not force feed, try not to feed emotionally, but also to decrease our anxiety around the way that kids eat. In my book, I also incorporate Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibilities, which I think is such a great concept for parents to follow, which is that parents and children both have their own set of autonomous rules. Basically, parents decide what, when, and where, and children decide if and how much. So as a parent, it is your duty to choose wholesome foods for your child to eat, to provide a safe place for them to eat, and to have a flexible schedule. But once you do that part, it's up to your child to decide if and how much they're going to eat of that meal. And you don't have to cross over into their autonomy by saying, hey, here's the airplane, here's another bite, or you can't have this until you eat that, or you you know, you know, can't have any more of this because it's fattening or it's bad for you. So those are the little things that we do to start to interfere with that autonomy, which little by little teaches children that they shouldn't trust their bodies. Yeah, that those are all great points. And so, you know, I think that parents are just inundated with information about nutrition and how to feed their kids and what to say and what not to say. And I think, like you said before, we're just really on top of our kids a lot about what they're eating, what they're not eating. And I think parents are just overwhelmed in general with everything having to do with parenting today. And so how can we make this a little bit easier and motivate parents to want to, you know, shift their mindset about intuitive eating and follow that path? I agree. I think it's very overwhelming. And there's so much shaming with parenting going on. And I really want parents to take a deep breath and enjoy the process. Because what I mostly see is parents that are so stressed out about feeding their kids that they're not enjoying it at all. So what I try to do is help parents simplify it. 
like I said before, following the division of responsibilities, fostering that natural intuitive ability. But also you do have to learn a little bit. I think it's important to learn a little bit about nutrition. It doesn't have to be complicated. And what I tell parents is focus on including as many whole plant foods as you can. It doesn't have to be exclusive. Definitely not. There's no evidence to show that we have to exclusively only eat plant foods in order to be healthy. But if we can integrate more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds into our own and our family's diets, that is going to provide us with more fiber, more antioxidants, lots of great food to feed our gut microbiome, which is really great for our health. So you as a parent, have to have some of that knowledge so that you can provide the health promoting food, offer it to your child on a flexible schedule, and then your child decide if and how much. But after you offer that food, you kind of let go of the outcome. You let your child decide how much they're going to eat and don't try to interfere or associate that with any sort of, you know, blame on your part. If they don't want to eat the broccoli four days in a row. That's fine. That's normal. You just keep offering the food, keep offering the variety, and then your child over time will learn to like those foods because the only way that children learn to like foods is through repeated and consistent exposure. Yeah. So I think it can be simpler than we're making it. We don't have to be have PhDs in nutrition. We don't have to feel like we're going to get parenting a reward or award of the year. It's more about just being consistent, sticking to it and trying not to get caught up in your child's autonomy. Yeah, that's so important. I think so many parents, they say, well, I tried and they don't like this food. And so they're a picky eater. And then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. And then parents just give up on on anything, on, on you know, feeding any new food. Um, so yeah, consistency is important because it may not be, you know, this week, this month, but it, it may be next year and you just have to keep on being consistent with it. Exactly. Lots and lots of patience is required. Yes. And that's why I say it's, it's important not to get caught up on the other side because then we feel like we're failures and we're doing something wrong, but I'm here to reassure you that you are absolutely not doing anything wrong. That is normal behavior for a child. And so you just keep doing what you're doing with the smile and be joyful and have fun. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just like everything else in parenting, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So Dr. Yami, talk to me about the five pillars of healthy eaters. So I created this as a little blueprint to guide parents. Just like you asked before, how can we make this simpler? How can we make this easier for parents? So I developed something that I feel like is, is a good guideline. So number one, which I think is the most important is to honor hunger and satiety. And it takes practice and it takes patience, just like anything else. If you're not used to it, if you're used to always telling your child to eat more or eat less, you're, you're going to have to practice this and you're not necessarily going to be perfect at it. But number one, children are born naturally intuitive and honor that hunger and satiety. Number two is to emphasize whole plant foods, like I said before. How can we integrate more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds? Currently, the standard American diet, 60% of our calories 
are derived from ultra processed foods. That means that pretty much everybody in the United States can eat more whole plant foods. It's going to benefit us all just to eat more. Doesn't have to be exclusive. You don't have to be vegan. You don't have to be 100% plant-based, but how can you integrate more into your breakfast, lunch, dinner, and your snacks? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Number three is to establish a positive environment. So this has to do with two things. The first one is going to be with what you have in your home. A lot of parents say, I wish my kids ate more vegetables. I wish my kids ate more fruits, but they don't offer them and they don't have them in the house. If you aren't exposing your child to these foods, they're not going to learn to like them. This is especially true for teenagers because for teenagers to eat certain foods, it has to be readily available, convenient and fast. So you have to make it easy to access. And the only way you're going to do that is by having it in your house. So fill your fridge, your freezer, your pantry, your counters, your cabinets, fill it with a lot of nourishing foods, the foods that you envision your family to be eating. If that's what how you want your family to eat, you have to fill your environment with it. But the second part of this pillar is going to be referring to our body image, our body confidence. A lot of people don't think about this, but our children, they observe everything we do. They hear what we say. They see what we're reading. If we are constantly saying disparaging things about our own bodies, which is very common, especially among females in the United States, then kids learn that. But they also start to believe that if their bodies don't look a certain way, then that means that that's a problem. There's something wrong with them. So start paying attention to your own language. What are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about your body? What are you saying about other people's bodies? How much attention are you paying to the size and shape of other people's bodies? What literature, what media do you have around the house? Do you subscribe to a lot of weight loss magazines? Are they laying around with lose 10 pounds so you can fit into your bikini by summer? Or are you watching a lot of programming around that? Because that is part of your environment as well. And that's also teaching something to your children. So what do you want your children to learn about their bodies and about the importance of how they look? So that's part of establishing a positive environment as well. Number four is to be flexible. I think especially some of us with the type A perfectionistic personalities, we feel like we have to do everything 100%. So if we're gonna eat healthy, it's gonna be 100% of the time. And you know we can never not eat healthy or we're failures. So this is about reminding everybody that it's okay to leave room in your life for some fun and pleasure, play foods. And I employ the 80-20 rule, meaning that 80% of the time, strive to eat as healthfully as possible. So that 20% of the time, you have wiggle room to incorporate those foods that you save for celebrations, the birthday cakes and the cupcakes and the ice cream on hot summer days. You know, you want to leave room for that flexibility so that you don't have this life that feels restrictive or that feels like it has tension around food. And then the last one is my favorite, which is relax and have fun. Healthy eating, feeding your family shouldn't be stressful. I want it to be fun. I want it to be enjoyable. I want it to bring joy to you and your family. So this is the part where, you know, you do your best, 
you learn as you go, but you laugh at your mistakes or at your blunders, and then you keep moving forward. So those are the five pillars. That's great. So one of the things that you mentioned is body image. And, you know, I have a 10 and an eight-year-old and the 10-year-old, she is always asking me, mommy, am I fat? And I honestly don't know where it comes from. I don't talk about my body in that way because I grew up with a mom who did. And I see the impact that it has had on me. So I never say anything to her. And I always say, you're beautiful. Your body is shaped different than your sister's. And you're beautiful and you're healthy. And that's all that matters, you know? And And, but I don't know. I think that they are hearing messages outside of the home from maybe other kids or just, you know. Absolutely. So I don't want this to mean that you have the sole responsibility or you are the sole provider of all of our ideas about body image because we know that that's not true. I mean, even for us as adults, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to look a certain way. And we know that our, social media, even friends and family. Like the reason I started dieting, there was no social media back when I was nine. It was because my family told me. So there's, there's definitely inputs from all different places. But what I would say for your daughter is to start with a question. It's like, do you think you're fat and why? Where, where, what part of your body do you feel should look a certain way or look differently and why? And just be curious about where she's getting these ideas, but also just like you said, to be honest. And I don't think we should tell our kids, no, everybody looks exactly the same because we don't. So talk about why we have body differences. One thing that I do very deliberately in my practice is when girls start coming around this age, because we know that they're going to start hitting puberty in a few years before that pubertal burst that they have of their hormones, their bodies do start changing. So I tell them ahead of time, just realize and know that as your hormones change, your body's going to start changing. You're going to start putting more fat around your hips and your breasts, maybe even your tummy. And this is normal. It's normal for your body to change in this way. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. And to also tell children that as we age, as we go through life, that, you know, it changes. We're going to change when we're pregnant. We're going to change when we're postpartum, different seasons of our life. We look different. Our body is constantly evolving and changing. It's definitely not staying the same all the time. So whenever we have those honest conversations with children and let them express to us what their concerns are or where they're feeling pressures, I think that's a great way to keep the conversation open so that it it turns more into a healthy dialogue rather than something that they keep to themselves and decide that they're going to take into their own hands. Yeah, that's all great information. So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the practical ways that we can implement intuitive eating in our families. If you want your kids to eat more fruits and vegetables, try new foods and eat better overall, getting them in the kitchen is one of the best things you can do. I've seen how cooking has helped my own kids be more adventurous eaters, and it's given them a ton of confidence. But if cooking isn't your thing, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The Kids Cook Real Food eCourse, which was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. 
In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping list, and kid-friendly recipes like egg, fried rice, and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food e-course is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. So in our last segment, we were talking about the five pillars of healthy eaters and how to foster a positive body image in our kids. So let's get into a little bit more of the practical ways that um, we can teach intuitive eating and foster that in our families. And so we talked about recognizing hunger and satiety cues, and I found this to be kind of challenging with my kids. I don't know how to explain it to them, and I, I bet I've messed it up through the years. I've, I've interfered like you've, like you've talked about, but... Um, you know, how can we how can we teach our kids how to recognize those cues? Do should it be a visual or do we talk about it with them? I think it's different at different stages. So when they're really young, especially babies, we know that they show us their cues. So we know when they're hungry, they start making little little signs to us and each baby might be a little bit different. And then as they grow, we kind of start missing those cues a little bit because our anxiety gets in the way. <laughs> it's like, well, that can't be true because especially with toddlers, one of the things that I hear often from parents, a big frustration is that they start throwing their food on their high chair. And I tell parents, well, that's usually a sign that they're done. That's usually a sign that they're full. They don't want food anymore. So instead of trying to encourage them to keep eating, why don't we say, hey, let's clean up. It's time to go play. So little things like that. As they get older, you can start talking to them about it. But the main thing I think is providing sufficient food in these flexible schedules and then letting them tune into their own bodies and learn it themselves. There's definitely genetic differences in how people eat and how much food feels comfortable to them and their bodies. But what happens as kids get older, one of the things I see is that whenever we restrict food, especially on the children that we feel their bodies are larger than they should be. And so we may either purposely or even subconsciously start to restrict food, then that can cause more of an obsession with food and really start to interfere with that hunger satiety because it might create this false scarcity around food. So I want parents more to focus on the things not to do instead of trying to figure out the hunger and satiety, because each individual has to figure out their own hunger and satiety. It's different for each person. And you can talk to 
little kids about it, especially the toddlers and the preschoolers about their tummy being empty or their tummy feeling full. But I don't want you to spend too much time talking about it. I want you to spend more time following these principles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think like I think we talked about this before, but there's a lot of focus on nutrition in the U.S. In in um, parents have a lot of focus on nutrition. Do you think that focusing too much on nutrition around our kids can actually backfire just like that scarcity? Um, and, and how should we talk to our kids about food? Absolutely. The biggest mistake is going to be associating food with weight. So we should definitely avoid doing that and starting to talk about calories or eating too much and we get fat or eating, you know, those kinds of things. Whenever we talk about food in that way, the studies show that it can definitely trigger some disordered eating. However, I think if we get really obsessed with the details about food and kind of classifying food as black and white, making it this very moral issue, like this food is bad, this food is good, then that can definitely create issues. You know, we have a new disordered eating category called orthorexia, which people that have orthorexia They're not as concerned about their weight, but they get very obsessed with the healthfulness of food to the point that it starts to interfere with their well-being and their social life. So we definitely don't want to teach those principles, but I think it's perfectly okay to talk to our kids about food and that food is powerful and that food can be connected to our well-being. Food can be connected to whenever, you know, we're not feeling quite so good, but that they have the power to determine that for their own bodies. And when I talk to my kids about things, because obviously this is one of my favorite topics in the world, I love nutrition and I have way too much knowledge about all of these different (laughs) foods. So it's a problem sometimes, but no matter what, I always bring it back to really in reality, there's no bad food and there's no good food. Food is all neutral. Some foods have a lot of benefits. Some foods may not have nutrition benefits, but they have benefits for our joy. So Mm -hmm. like a good example of that is going to be a cupcake at somebody's birthday party. Yeah, maybe it doesn't have much fiber and antioxidants in there, but you want to eat that because it's part of the celebration and that contributes to your well-being. If you have too many cupcakes, then you may not feel good inside your body and that's for you to determine. But I think taking it away from black and white, all or nothing, good and bad, allows kids to determine for themselves how foods are going to play in their their life and the choices they make as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. That's all important. My, my daughter played softball this uh, spring and she had her last game and they had a big party and there was a ton of junk food and they just, you know, I, I just let them get whatever they wanted. And they were, you know, they were asking me, is it okay? And I just said, yeah, like this is fun, but you have to decide what is appropriate for your body. You know, if you're going to stomach ache later, well, then, you know, right. But, um, mm-hmm. you have to, sometimes, you know, we have to just kind of let go and there are times to eat like that. Um, so how can we practice intuitive eating at mealtimes and in the home with our whole family? One of the best things is to sit down, undistracted, no TV on, have an enjoyable conversation, have sufficient food in front of you 
and, you know, just take a nice, easy, relaxing meal. Obviously, when you have really little ones, sometimes it's not relaxing because they're done in like five (laughs) minutes. And so that's the end of your meal. But, you know, as our kids get older and we want to continue to foster that intuitive eating, sitting down, having undistracted family meals is really great. And this also goes along with that creating a positive environment, because like I said before, we are some of our kids' biggest role models. They are watching us, even the teenagers. You think that they may not be, but they are watching us. So when we sit down, we give our, ourselves that time to eat and enjoy our meals. They're seeing that we value that, and they're seeing that that's important, that they should also give themselves time to sit down and enjoy their meals. And you know, also if we role model eating our fruits and veggies and eating our whole plant foods, that's a plus as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so what if you have a family member, though, that isn't, you know, doesn't have the best eating habits? How do you get that person on board with the whole family? You know, I think it depends on the age. In my book, I talk about the different stages of development. And one of the challenging stages of development is also adolescence. And it's very normal for kids when they become teenagers to have this feeling that they want to explore their individuality and they want to try different things. So they definitely go through a phase where even if they were, you know, these quote great eaters, I don't like saying that term because that also sort of just puts kids in a category, but say you never had a problem. You made dinner and they just ate dinner and it was great. And now you're seeing like wrappers from all these candy bars or chips and they're bringing soda home. And it's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Just know that that's a phase. And we also have to approach that in a way that we're not shaming the child, but that it's totally okay to have rules in your own house. So the rule might be, well, you know, I'm, I'm fine with you eating that outside of the house, but you, I really don't want you to come and put that inside my cabinets and inside my fridge. You know, you have to determine what rules you're going to set. Another thing that I see often is when I talk to moms and then dads want to eat a different way. So moms are trying to have more health promoting food in the house and the dad wants to bring home the bags of chips and the sodas and things like that or vice versa. I'm not saying that dads are more like that. I just talk to moms a lot. So that can happen with one other family member that are bringing things into the house. And I think just having a conversation about what you each envision as how you want the family to eat, not making any food off limits or not demonizing or moralizing any food, but remember that the environment that you create is your vision board for life. So how do you want your family to eat? What kind of foods do you want them to be exposed to? And try to make that the predominant foods in your house instead of these other foods. So that's some ideas that you can start playing around with. Yeah, that's so important. I think it's really important to just stay focused on the goal and your why for your Mm -hmm. kids and and their lives. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the play food drawer that you talk about in your book and a little bit about um, how that works. Hey friends, if you've got kids, you've got picky eaters. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. There are foods my kids flat out refuse to eat or foods they love one day and the next, not so much. Still through the years, I've learned the secrets to raising healthy, adventurous eaters. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free video course, 
Turn your picky eaters into little foodies. In this course, you'll learn some of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat their vegetables, try new foods, and how you can put an end to picky eating for good. To sign up, all you have to do is go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So in our last segment, we were talking about what to do when one of your family members doesn't eat quite as healthy as the others and how to manage that. And so um, let's shift gears for a second. And in your book, you talk about the play food draw. And I actually, I think we had this conversation last time on your own podcast, um, but I did this with my kids and, um, you know, basically they were able to pick out some treats and it was like goldfish and Oreos and, and my other daughter picked out candy and a fruit drink. And, you know, I think one of the, my youngest daughter, she pretty much, you know, she kind of went to town the first day and then she was able to modulate it throughout the week. And my older daughter plowed through an entire package of Oreos in four days. So, <laughs> um, so why don't you go ahead and tell me, you know, what are the benefits of doing this with your kids and how do you do it and, and how should you manage it? Okay. Yeah. I, I get this question a lot because I probably didn't elaborate as much in the book because it's just kind of like a little idea. I learned this from one of my coaches that I had worked with in the past because of all of the restriction I was creating for myself, I was passing it down to my kids. So I was creating a lot of restriction. So this concept of the play food drawer, I think is really helpful whenever you realized that your child has developed a sense of scarcity around a certain food. How do you know this? Well, the way you know it is when they do finally have access to that food, they can't stop eating it or they're eating it with this desperate animalistic look on their face <laughs> like, they, <laughs> like they've never eaten in their lives, you know? And so I realized this, especially for my older son, because my older son had been exposed to this scarcity mindset for much longer than my younger son. They definitely have different approaches to food anyway, genetically, but there were certain foods that he, if he was around, he wasn't even paying attention to his hunger and satiety. He was just blowing through it, eating more, like it was never gonna end. So I realized he had this sense of scarcity. I had done this for myself first because I had to learn how to allow different foods into my life and not have a sense of scarcity around them, which is magical because once you do that, you realize that there's some foods that you've created all this excitement and energy around that once you allow them, you actually don't like them that much. Right. That happened to me with Halloween candy. It was like the most <laughs> amazing experience because I could never have Halloween candy in the house. I was that person. Oh, I can't have it here. I'm going to eat it. But once I allowed it and I had it in my play food drawer, I realized actually it doesn't taste that good. And I don't now I have zero problem with Halloween candy. It could be right there in front of me. And I'm just like, mm, no, thanks. I'm good. Yeah. So that's why I decided to try it for my kids. And it it's it is a very anxiety provoking thing for a lot of families that have tried it, but it requires time and it requires patience. So you'll see at the beginning and it you'll know that it's working right and that you're doing it for the right food if your child does eat it all at the beginning, because that means that they have a sense of scarcity around that food. But if you continue to allow that food and you're not just a lot, like you're not just having like truckloads of this stuff, <laughs> but you can fill it every week or, you know, twice a month or something like that. 
Yeah. And the more you do it and they, the more their brain realizes, oh, I'm going to keep having access to it. It's, it's fine. Then they relax and you see that they're eating it less and less and less until the time when you realize that you don't even have to refill it every time because there's still that food there. And there's different foods for different people. And, you know, you just kind of start going through and you ask your kids, well, what is that food that you feel like you can never eat? What would you like? And then that's what you put into their, their little protected, either a drawer or a cabinet, something where it's just for them. Nobody else is going to take it because that can also create a sense of scarcity. If there are siblings that are always taking your food, then you may have a, a sense of scarcity around a certain food, you know? So it's uh-huh. their protected, little protected drawer or cabinet where they can have their play foods. And we do have certain rules around play food at my house. One of the big things is you can't eat it after you've brushed your teeth at night, because I'm not trying to promote cavities around here. So that's a rule. And you can't eat it right before dinner. Like they know Uh we usually have dinner, our meals around a certain time. And, you know, we're about to have a meal. So that's not time for your play food. They usually have it either as like a dessert or a snack, those kinds of things. And we're so used to it now because we've done it for years that really the play food thing is just now fun. It's, it's not really because they have a sense of scarcity. And in my younger son's play food drawer, I think there's things that have been in there for over a year. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I really love that idea. I think it's really great. So what are some lifestyle habits that support intuitive eating? I love talking about this because we do focus on nutrition so much But what's so amazing about the human body and about the way our hormones work for hunger and satiety is that there's other things that affect it. One of the big things is sleep. And we've probably noticed this ourselves as adults, that whenever we don't sleep well, we actually have more cravings and we want foods that are higher in calorie density. So foods that have more sugar and more fat. And that's a protective mechanism because being sleep deprived is actually stressful to our bodies. It's a signal, hey, something's not quite right. Make sure you're getting plenty of calories because something's about to happen. And so we really wanna pay attention to sleep and our kids, especially as they get older and they get involved in a lot of activities. I start seeing that the school age kids and the teenagers, they start skimping on their sleep. And this can really make it hard for them to tune into their bodies because their hormones are telling them to do a certain thing. So make sure that kids are getting plenty of sleep. And in the book, I outline how much is appropriate for each stage of development. Another one that's very similar is stress. So especially this last year, we had the pandemic, so much anxiety in adults and children. These stressful times, these mood changes can also trigger us to eat more. And I'm not saying that this is a bad thing because it's a protective mechanism, but we just have to keep our eyes and ears open so that we can start making a link. So say you have a child who's always eaten a certain amount. They're not necessarily going through a growth spurt, but then you see they're just like really eating a lot and eating a lot and seeming to be more, you know, thinking more about food. And then you start realizing, oh, they've kind of been anxious lately. It could be because of that anxiety that food is becoming more of a central part in their life. And then physical activity. Physical activity is just something that's very natural for a lot of children. But as they get older, 
they start to become more sedentary because of our lifestyles. And whenever we're not moving enough, that can also affect our appetites. It can change our appetites. And combine that with stress and sleep deprivation, that can really set us up for a lot of overeating. And it's not just this normal overeating that we do at holidays or special events and stuff like that. It just becomes a very habitual overeating. And so these are clues whenever we see that things may not be the same as usual or not quite right. Yeah. And so, you know, kids are still dealing, even though we're coming out of the pandemics, kids are still dealing with there's high rates of anxiety. And and now they're also we're in summer. I think, you know, more kids are are just kind of bored. And so mm-hmm. how do we deal with a child when we know that they're an emotional eater? Well, we stick with the principles. First and foremost, we do not restrict. That is not the thing that you want to do. If you start restricting, that can really throw things into a very chaotic place when it comes to their relationship with food. So you want to make sure that they have sufficient access to food, health promoting foods, and have a flexible schedule. One thing that I saw that happened during the pandemic, which is nobody's fault, is just like, this is where we all were, is that food and eating just became an all day grazing session. Like we were just eating nonstop all day. There wasn't any separation (laughs) between meals and snacks or anything. So you do want to have a consistent, flexible schedule. You don't have to be like a drill sergeant, eat exactly at noon, exactly at five, but you have a, a good, consistent, flexible schedule where you are providing food. And between those times, you're doing other things. And I think that also helps the emotional eaters so that they don't get into this habit of, I think of food, I eat food, which can be every 30 minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or maybe finding replacement activities for those tough emotions. Absolutely. And talking about it, because as your child becomes older and they can verbalize what they're feeling, then you can start talking through it. And I will say this pandemic, it has caused super high levels of anxiety. So if you're able to find a therapist for your child and you feel like you need professional help, do it. I think that there is no shame when it comes to getting professional help for these mood disorders because it can interfere with life so significantly and it can really help children. So make sure that you're reaching out if you feel like this is really becoming an issue. Yeah, definitely. And so you say that when we're addressing overweight kids, the health at every the health at every size approach is key. So what is that and how do we practice it? Health at every size is very misunderstood. A lot of people think that health at every size means that every person at every size is healthy. That's not what it means. The way that I interpret it is that every individual has the capacity to alter or continue healthy habits in order to promote well-being for themselves, regardless of the size of their bodies. And the reason that this is important is because, especially recently, we have come to believe in our society and our culture that if you're a certain size, that automatically makes you unhealthy. And the only way to become healthy is to lose weight. So we just have a big focus on weight and weight loss as the gateway to joy and longevity and well being which is not true. Really, the way that we get to well-being and longevity is through our habits and behaviors. And every person, regardless of the size of their body, 
can learn to adopt those habits and behaviors that leads to the well-being and the joy that they seek in their life. This is important for, for people of all ages, whether you're a child or you're an adult, but I think it's especially important for children because if we start sending them the messages early on in life that the size of your body equals health, the size of your body equals happiness, then that really sets them up for lifelong dieting and, you know, body dissatisfaction, which is what I experienced from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great points. So we talked a little bit about this before, but I know that, you know, on your Instagram uh, channel, you you have a ton of content about plant-based eating and recipes and things like that. And and so did your journey start because you saw your patients dealing with these issues from dairy specifically? My story of how I discovered plant-based nutrition is very different than most. I did it as an experiment because I was very curious about it after I had read about it in a book. And that just opened my worldview. But the reality is, like I said, in the United States, we aren't eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. We aren't eating a lot of plants. We all know this. And learning about plant-based nutrition, learning about looking at food more as whole food versus processed food and a plant food that has fiber and antioxidants versus a non-plant food simplified everything for me. And I felt like it was my mission to help parents, help families, help children just eat more whole plant foods. I'm not trying to convert people into vegans or have them be exclusive plant eaters. I just want to encourage them and help them learn how to eat more whole plant foods in a tasty, fun and delicious way, you know? Yeah. So it just, it was just so much simpler to me rather than the paradigm before, which was what's lowering calories or what, you know, has this or that. It was just very complex. And now it's just very simple. Eat more whole plant foods. Yeah. Pretty simple. Yeah, it is. Definitely. Tell me, Dr. Yami, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Okay. So I am very active on Instagram. It's at the Dr. Yami. And my website is called dryami.com. From there, you can also find my other website, which is the first one I started to support plant-based parents and plant-based families, which is veggiefitkids.com. And there's lots of resources on that website. But I also have a ton of freebies, regardless of what part of the journey you're on. If you're just now learning about intuitive eating or how to feed kids, or if you want to learn how to eat more beans or whatever, if you go to dryami.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E, you can find all my freebies there. Lots of PDF downloads. You can share them with your friends and family. Lots of great things to find. Great. And I will link to that in the show notes. Dr. Yami, thank you so much for your time today and all the great information you provided. Julie, thank you so much for everything you do. I really appreciate you. I really love chatting with Dr. Yami. Her advice is so simple and straightforward. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a second, go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 